Man, the singing and fellowship helps warm us up, right? Woo, it is chilly. Um, I want to welcome uh, you uh, to our service today. If it's the first time you're attending, special welcome to Moses from Joburg. Come on, Pretoria, actually. Actually, from Tswane. Great to have you here, brother. And he's here for the week, I believe, so I'm sure we can get to know him a little bit better. Cool. Um, wasn't, wasn't last night amazing, those of you who were there? It was just so super encouraging just to see the, and to experience just the amazing talents that, you know, that God has given us as a church. Yes, Sorry? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm not going to do that. Now. Hey, morning, my peeps. Uh, Neil Dogg's preaching today. Just remember to follow... Follow me, get the, hey man, I'm not going there, I said I wouldn't do that. I blame my sister at the back, right. <laughs> it was fun. And our teens today are having lots of fun. They are, they are hiking as we, as we are here. Um, and I know it's just wonderful to build family memories again, isn't it? And uh, we can look forward to a spring dance, I'm not too sure when that's going to happen. Uh, We can look forward to, I hope, more than just one talent show a year. So some of us can refine our acts just a little bit. Um, But it's just wonderful to really be able to form these family memories again. Great. So let's jump in. We are in a series, and I'm going to take just a minute or two to explain the background, because a few of you you haven't been here the last couple of weeks. Um, we are in a series called Of First Importance. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, Paul says, you know, that which he has received and has passed on um, of first importance. And then he refers to the death, you know, the, the, the death of Jesus for our sins, the burial and his resurrection. Um, and all of this happened according to the scriptures. Of first importance to us as disciples of Jesus um, the thing that is most important, more important than anything else, is that Jesus died, he was buried, and he was raised to new life. That's the foundation of our faith. So in this series, we, we are digging into this, uh, you know, this topic, this, this theme, this truth. Um, and we, we could take a year, you know, just speaking about this. But we're cramming it into three weeks. Uh, this is the third and last uh, part um, in, that, in that series. You know, this is good news because the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus established him as Christ. That's the word that Paul uses here, as King Jesus. It established Jesus as King, the supreme ruler, not just of the world, but of God's entire cosmos creation. But it's also good news because on the cross, Jesus dealt with our sin and the consequences of sin. So I'm going to start off just by reminding us what the consequences of sin are. And we can read about this in the first few chapters of of Genesis. Um, Sin tarnishes our ability to be God's image bearers. We are not able to represent and reflect God to the world um, the way mankind could before sin crept into the picture. Okay, we are tarnished, our ability to represent God. Um, Sin also separates us from, from God, from a holy God who cannot be in the presence of sin. Sin also damages relationships between people. It gets in the way of us having close, trusting, you know, amazing rela- um, relationships 
with one another. You know, we are sinners. Um, we, we live in a sinful world. Um, there, there, is, there is hurt. You know, the world is broken, and it affects our relationships with one another. And then fourthly, sin introduced death into the world. The wages of sin is death. And sin also turned um, work from a pleasurable pursuit in partnership with God to a hard grind. Guys can relate to that, eh? I mean, work isn't always easy. Okay, so these are consequences of sin. And sin can really explain all of these problems and difficulties um, that we experience in the world. But there's one other consequence of sin we're going to talk about today. Which up front I'll tell you that I haven't fully appreciated the effect of this in my own life. And I haven't fully understood and appreciated it in, in your lives and in the lives of other people. Okay, this is a huge topic. Uh, we won't do full justice to it today. But I do hope it's going to start um, a converse, conversations uh, that we're going to reflect on this and prayerfully in future, we can dig into this um, in, in some kind of a future series. So what is the topic? Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, please. Now this is after, um, you know, God has given Adam and Eve lots of freedom in the garden, in his good creation. They can eat anything they want, except for the fruit of one tree. Okay, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know what happens. You know, Satan comes and tempts Adam and Eve. We'll take up the reading in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. What is going on? What is going on in this passage? What, what do Adam and Eve feel? Shame, right? They feel shame. Now, earlier on in, in chapter 2, verse 25, we read that the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. So the nakedness is a picture here, and their realization that they were naked, it's, it's a picture of their, of their shame. The consequence of sin that we're going to talk about today, and which is addressed by the death, real, resurrection, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it is addressed by the thing that is of most importance, is shame. All right, and I've titled the lesson, Shame or Honor, uh, in keeping with the way we are um, titling the lessons in the series, it's a question. Remember part one was, were you there? Last week, part two was, fear or faith? Okay, and the question we ask today is, do we experience shame or honor? But what is shame? Now, there's, a, there's an author, a speaker, a researcher who I think some of you will be familiar with or at least have listened to her or read her stuff. Whoops, 
Her name is Brene Brown. Uh, she's done a lot of research into the subject of shame. And she defines shame like this. She says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that you are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. It's the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that you are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Now, guilt and shame are closely related. You would, you would agree with that, right? But they are also different. Guilt focuses on behavior. Shame questions our identity. Guilt says you made a mistake. Shame says you are a mistake. Shame says you are unacceptable. Shame says you are unlovable. Shame says you are unworthy. Now, where does shame come from, though? It can come from sin. It can come from our own sin. Um, it can come from a family system that has been role-modeled for you and that has been passed down. It can even come from our culture. It can come from the sin of others, you know, who have hurt you and caused shame. Now, before sin entered the world, there was no shame, right? We see that. I've, I've just read that. Um, because there was nothing to be ashamed of. No, but once sin occurred, shame resulted. Everybody feels shame. Christians feel shame, feel guilt and shame. To some extent, all of us in this room have felt shame and are probably feeling some shame as we sit here. You know, it is just, it's a sign, it, it, it is, it's just what this broken world is about. Okay, we all experience shame to some extent. Some feel shame more deeply than others, maybe on the sensitivity of their conscience, their view of God, uh, maybe their experience in their family, the experience in their culture, whatever it is, but we all experience shame to some extent. Now, culture does play um, you know, a role in this, um, you know, especially in shame on the cultures, which is the culture, the, the, you know, the setting of the Bible is an Eastern culture, which we're going to get into. But especially in shame honor cultures, where the avoidance of shame and the quest for honor is an important driver of the way people think and behave. Okay. Um, and shame and honor are big themes in the Bible. If you read the Bible with, a world, with that worldview of an Eastern mindset, shame, honor, culture, it's amazing how you see this. They might not always use the words, but in the background, behind the settings and behind the teachings, you can see this, this desire um, for honor. You know, for example, we read, and I'm just going to read a couple of scriptures here, um, Ezra 9 verse 6. You can just listen to this, make notes, and check this out on your own later. Ezra says, My God, my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face towards you. Because our iniquities, our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt is as high as the heavens. Ezra felt shame and he personalized it. Ezra didn't even, he wasn't the sinner. But because God's family, his community was in sin, he felt the shame. That's the nature of the culture and the nature of God's family. You know, we affect one another. Our sin affects our brothers and sisters, and our shame is something that needs to be shared and understood. We share everything. 
We have everything in common. And shame is one of those things, you know, that is, it's, it's a communal thing that we can help each other deal with. In Isaiah 61 verse 7, and this is part of a prophecy about the coming Messiah, Isaiah writes, writes, Instead of shame and dishonor, you will enjoy a double portion of honor. You will possess a double portion of prosperity in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. And then it goes on to promise a time when you know God would make an everlasting covenant with his people, and we know that would be inaugurated through, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that is, which is of first importance. Um, and in this, in the, their shame, honor, honor, shame culture, um, they, they looked forward to a time. Their, their hope in Messiah included looking forward to a time when their communal shame would be replaced by honor. And it was something to really look forward to. You know, dealing finally with the shame that Israel had experienced, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And not only would their honor be restored, but that it would be filled with everlasting joy. And as we progress today, you're going to see how this, you know, comes together in Jesus. Shame replaced by honor. And when our shame is dealt with, it brings joy, doesn't it? I mean, there are very few things that rob us of our joy as much as shame. Are the only one? No. You know, so part of this restoration and part of reversing the consequences of sin through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus includes releasing us from our shame, restoring us in honor, and giving us this everlasting joy. And I just want to share with you today uh, three points, uh, three habits that we can develop to help us to kill shame. Sorry, Dean. There we go. How to kill shame. All right, number one, that'll come. Bring it into the light, okay? Bring it into the light. James 5.16 reads, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Shame thrives on silence, you know, like sin. But when we tell somebody about our sin and our feelings of guilt and shame, um, it loses its power. Um, There is power when we confess our sin and we share our shame with a brother or sister in Christ. You know, our relationships that we have in God's family is an incredible gift. It really is. You know, let's use it to help bring, to bring healing to one another, including releasing each other from, from this burden, this prison of shame. Let's share the monkey. I don't know if that's the saying you guys have heard. In, in business, it was used quite often. Um, you know, if you were really, uh, you know, if, if, if you had a problem uh, which you couldn't, you know, sort of solve, um, they would say, you know, Neil, what's, you know, what's, what's the monkey on your shoulder? Share it with us. I mean, you can imagine a little monkey on your shoulder all the time, crapping your head. You know, share the monkey, they would say. And I think it's the same with our sin and our shame. It can become like a monkey on our shoulder, irritating. We know it's there, right? But we've got to share the monkey. Um, you know, I remember, okay, let me first say that, you know, we're talking about confessing sin. Do it wisely. Please don't confess your sin on social media, right? 
It's not the way, and what little I know, I have seen it. Now be wise, you don't have to throw yourself out there to the whole world. Find a, a trusted friend who you know well and who knows you. You know, confide in that person. Someone who will empathize with you, someone who will pray with you, James 5, and who will help you to heal. Someone who will give you good counsel and advice. Someone who perhaps has been in the same situation or similar situation to you. You know, someone who can be an accountability partner and walk with you. Okay, so confess our sin and speak about our, our shame, but do it, do it wisely. Um, you know, I, I remember years ago, soon after I was um, baptized, we had this, this D group of brothers, and I pray this still happens, right? D groups where we just focus on confession of sin. You know, we would pray, you know, we would be honest with each other. And I remember this, this one meeting, and I specifically remember the brothers, and I'm not going to mention them, that's not important. They're awesome brothers. And we were kind of struggling to get going. You could sense that, man, things had been happening. It had been a while since we had this kind of D group. And the guys were a bit reluctant, you know, to confess and to be completely open. You know what it's like? You're kind of very general. <laughs> you, you don't really want to get specific. It's embarrassing. Right? And I remember one of the brothers who was kind of the, the senior, or he'd been around longer than anyone else, and he said, you know, he just paused a bit, and he said, hey, brothers, it seems like we fear how we will be seen by one another more than we fear God. And I was like, whoa, okay. He says, God knows exactly what's been going on. Um, he probably could articulate it more specifically than even you can. So what's the big deal? You know, so we need to confess our sin, but we need to do it in a way that helps our brothers and sisters, that brings it into the light and enables our brothers and sisters, you know, to help us and enables God's spirit to work. Now, that's the spirit of vulnerability and honesty. Okay, so we need to bring our sin, our shame and our sin into the light. Now, as I mentioned, not all shame is caused by our sin. You know, sin can be caused by the actions of others, you know, such as childhood abuse, um, maybe acts of just discrimination you've experienced based on race or gender. Um, poverty, poverty can be, be a source of, um, of, of deep shame. Now, talking about our shame that has been brought on to others is also very helpful. It also helps to break the power of shame if we talk about it to others. And I know that some of you experience that. Um, you know, we are all, we, we are broken to some extent because of the state of, of the world. And I know some of you sitting there, man, you've been through so much. In your childhood, maybe even now more recently. You know, you've experienced stuff that has hurt you. And that has, that has shamed you. Um, you know, we, 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 I recognize that. Um, and I'm not going to pretend that it's easy. I'm not saying there's a silver bullet but your healing and my healing starts with bringing it out into the open. It loses its power when we shine the light on it and, and we bring it out there. Amen? We can at least start that way along the path of healing. Second point. Sin no more. You might say, wow, Neil, that sounds a bit harsh. I mean, wow, sin no more. I'm just sharing the words of Jesus. Okay, don't... Now, don't blame the messenger here. These are, these are exactly the words that Jesus used. Uh, let's turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. 
The setting here is a setting of deep shame for someone. It's really interesting the way Jesus deals with this. Okay, John 8. Verse 1, and your heading might be the woman caught in adultery, as it is in, in my Bible. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in, who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to him, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Would you agree that this woman felt deep shame? You know, the way that the Jewish leaders... And the Romans, those who had power, and I think it's still true nowadays. Um, the way, certainly, let me just speak about the Jewish leaders. In that shame on the culture, they were, they were not hesitant to heap shame on people. Okay? Now, this could have been dealt with differently. And yes, the Lord did say, you know, stone, stone a woman caught in, in adultery. But a whole bunch of them came, you know, senior leaders to the temple. And this poor woman would have been cowering before them. Some scholars say that she would probably have been partially dressed just to heap more shame on her. Okay? And then they want to trick Jesus. They want to catch him out and say, what should we do, Jesus? And Jesus writes on the ground. We don't know what he, what he wrote. There are probably a million different theories about that. Not too important to our purpose today, right? But then Jesus says to them, you know, those of you who have no sin, be the first one to cast the stone. Who was the only one there who could have cast the stone? Jesus, right? But he doesn't. And he says, I, I do not condemn you. Um, but note that Jesus does not say, I don't condemn you because your sin is not such a big deal. He says, I do not condemn you. Sin no more. Her sin was a big deal, right? And for her to get out of this, you know, this prison of shame, she needed to stop sinning. Jesus forgave her, he didn't condemn her, but she needed to stop sinning. You know, Jesus is full of grace and truth, and I can't think of a better event that describes this. You know, this the extent of his grace and his truth. Full of mercy, full of grace, full of respect for her. But he, but he spoke the truth to her, right? You know, sin no more. You know, we need to take sin seriously. We need to take our sin seriously and we need to take the sin of our brothers and sisters seriously. Um, we shouldn't minimize it or rationalize it. Don't call sin a little slip-up or a little mistake. And of course, we need to call sin what it, what it is. You know, we, we serve 
a holy God. And yes, we don't do perfectly, and obviously we're going to get there. There is forgiveness, but we need to take our sin seriously. And we should try to get to the point where Paul was, um, the point that Paul was in Romans 7, from verse 23. I'll just, you, you can follow me if you want, otherwise you can just, just listen. Paul, he says, But there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, which leads us, you know, to our third and last point. We will kill shame by embracing forgiveness. Embrace forgiveness. We'll kill shame by bringing it into the light. We'll kill shame by taking our sin seriously. And we will kill shame by embracing forgiveness. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. With me, church. Good. A bit of encouragement is good up here. Especially when you're looking at me like this, like, wow, this is serious. It is a serious message, right? But there's hope, we'll see. Ephesians 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. You know, we know scriptures like this, I believe, those of us who've been around, uh, there are many scriptures about the amazing forgiveness that we have in Christ, uh, you know, the power of, of, of his death, if we participate in his death, burial, and resurrection, that our sins are washed away. A once-for-all sacrifice is what Jesus did for us on the cross. He carried our sin. He also carried our shame. And that's where we're going to get to you. Um, you know, on the cross, Christ, uh, in Christ, through, the death, burial, and, through his death, burial, and resurrection, We are being restored in his image. Think of those consequences I've said. Um, Our relationship with God is restored. Our relationships with one another can be healed. We, We are no longer trapped by death. As Jesus had victory over death, we do. We have the hope of resurrection. And we can enjoy that life now, life to the full. It's liberating. And in Christ, we can at least cope with the hard grind of work. There's no promise we're never going to struggle with our boss, right? Uh, but we can be also be restored in meaningful, meaningful endeavor with God. You know, that aspect of work that God originally intended for us is available for us. Now, we can provide hope and healing to the world, continuing the mission of Jesus. We can have meaningful work endeavors with Jesus. And in Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, our shame has been dealt with. You know, so we need to embrace and receive and accept God's forgiveness. And we need to help each other understand the power of the cross to remove our shame. Now, especially people living in deep shame can feel unworthy of forgiveness. And we can feel, we can feel unworthy. And that's where we must come together. We must, we must work together and help each other as God's family. You know, and to help our brothers and sisters who are caught up in that lie of Satan. 
if you're feeling this morning, if you're feeling unworthy, you feel unlovable, you feel that you just don't belong anywhere because of shame, you know, there is hope. You know, Jesus provides that hope. So we need to accept the forgiveness of Jesus. We also need to embrace forgiveness of ourselves. Sure. You know, we can get really mad at ourselves sometimes, right? Well, it's only me. You think, oh, why did I do that? Why did I think that? Why did I, I say that? Okay? Um, and this indignation at sin can be a good thing. You know, it can help us to avoid sinning in future, but it can also be very unhealthy. You know, it may sound super spiritual, you know, to say... Um, you know, I can't forgive myself for doing such a terrible thing. You might think, oh, you know, super spiritual. You know, I've got it. I feel terrible about my sin. There's a fine line, though, and, well, I would actually say it's, it's exactly the opposite. Because if you often think like that, you know, the question is, who made you king? You know, who made you king? You know, who put you in that place where you can't, Forgive yourself. If the most holy God, the creator king of the universe, the most perfect one of all, looks at you, looks at your repentant heart, and says, I forgive you. You are my child. Um, I love you dearly. My son has paid the price for your sin and your guilt. You are holy and righteous before me. Which voice do you listen to? Okay. We need to learn to forgive ourselves. Amen? You know, who are we to contradict God? If God says, you know, forgiveness is available to you, my grace and mercy is available to you, who are we to think that we can play God? You know, the one most qualified to cast the first stone we saw, cast mercy. Okay. Let's stop throwing stones at ourselves. So we need to embrace God's forgiveness of us. We need to embrace forgiving ourselves. And we need to forgive those. We need to embrace forgiving those who have sinned against us. Now this is getting tough, isn't it? Right. You know, the, the shame that people and, and systems and cultures have heaped upon us through no fault of our own. Many innocent people, many people experience shame not through any actions of their own, but through the actions of others. Um, now, we shouldn't rationalize and minimize our own sin. We also shouldn't rationalize and minimize the sins of others, people who have affected us, right? That doesn't help them, and it doesn't help us get to the point of, of processing it and, for, and, and getting to the point of forgiving them. Um, you know, Jesus wrote in Matthew 6, 15, one of the most challenging scriptures in the Bible, and I'll just paraphrase. He said, man, if you don't forgive other people, God won't forgive you. And it's like, oh, really? Yeah, and it's part of, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, and there's a lot of the challenging, challenging teachings of Jesus in that passage of scripture. But, you know, I've, I've kind of changed the way I read that, you know, kind of the carrot and the sticker thing. I always thought that this was like the stick. And I'm going to zap you if you don't forgive people. But the heart of Jesus is he wants healing. 
And I know for myself, if I have hesitated to forgive people, if I have held grudges, it makes me bitter. It makes me resentful, right? You know, we need to learn to forgive others, not just because Jesus forgave us, but because it's part of it. It's part of our healing, right? You know, how do we do this? And man, I'm not a, I'm definitely not a, a trained counselor, but I do know that Christian counselors suggest a couple of things, and, and one thing that I've seen in people really helps. We are, if, if you're in that situation where you have been hurt and shamed and people or a system, groups of people have, have shamed you, they have hurt you, and you're carrying around deep shame. Christian counselors suggest, and this is like 101 stuff, okay, I'm very aware what I don't know, but I've seen it, and some of you, yeah, I know have done this, but write it down. Um, draw up an inventory of what, of what happened to you. Even write a letter to that person. You might or might not give it to them. Write it down. Everything that's happened to you, how you feel. And then pray. Pray every day. And in time, pray even that your heart will change. Pray for the, this amazing, you know, God's spirit to actually allow you and enable you to, to forgive those people. And you might even have the opportunity to, to approach them. I know, you know a sister who, who wrote a letter to the, to the man who should have been protecting her but who abused her as a child. He wrote a letter to him and actually delivered it at his door. What he did with it wasn't her business. You know, but she, she explained in some detail what she remembered and she said, I forgive you. Come on. And you know how liberating that was. Not only didn't you know, she was able to not you know, be resentful, um, but her shame was dealt with. She realized she was not unworthy. She was worthy. That she was not unlovable. She was lovable. That it wasn't her fault. And that can get us started on, on this path of dealing with shame that has been heaped on us you know, by, other, by other people. Now, so how do we kill shame? Bring it into the light. Undertake to sin no more and embrace forgiveness. God's forgiveness of you, your forgiveness of yourself, and your forgiveness of those who have caused hurt and shame in your life. So I want to conclude just by looking at the example of, of Jesus. And this, lead, this will lead us into the communion. Just what his death, burial, and resurrection, that thing that is of most important importance, what has that got to do with shame? Now, God and Jesus feels all emotions. Would you agree with that? Even anger, properly, you know, properly channeled, is a, is a healthy emotion. God experienced all emotions, and Jesus experienced shame. Let's read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race set before us, the race God has set before us. And now verse 2 especially. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated at the place of honor, 
beside God's throne. You see the shame on the culture there? The setting of the Bible? You know, Jesus, Jesus experienced shame. It, it doesn't say that he didn't experience shame, but he scorned it, he disregarded it, he thought lightly of it, is, is one translation. And he didn't do it because he's superficial and he didn't feel it, but he knew what was coming. He knew and he trusted God fully that he would be raised in new life, that he would be placed, he would be seated at the place of greatest honor, the right hand of God. His honor would be restored. And crucifixion, like the stoning of the, you know, the, the woman caught in adultery, was designed in this case by the Romans to not only be painful, it was just designed to be shameful. Now, typically, people were even crucified naked. Jesus probably had a loincloth, but just hanging up there exposed like that, you know, bleeding, um, moaning, crying, people jeering at you. You can imagine the shame you know, that was heaped on Christ. But here's the thing. Jesus did not only carry our sin on the cross, he carried our shame on the cross. And just as Jesus went from that shame to a place of honor and joy, you know, I read here, because of the joy awaiting him, what does that remind you of? Isaiah 61, shame replaced by joy and honor. Now we had that. What is true of the king is true of us. Jesus has dealt with our shame in a way that we can't. And he, he has replaced our shame. If you're in Christ, and if you're working through these things, I'm not saying we, no one's perfect and we're not going to be in this age, but you're in Christ. And in God's family and, and living this, you know, living out your faith as, as best you can, you have been placed in a place of honor. Your identity has been restored. You have, given, you have been given purpose. You are told you are worthy. You are partnering with God. You are partnering with Jesus in the most honorable mission of all. And that's to go out into a world that is hurting, a world that is broken, and to give people hope. And to live out that hope. And part of living out that hope and demonstrating that hope is to show how the shame of the world and the shame of people who do not know Jesus can be dealt with. We can be freed from this prison of, of guilt and shame. So I just want to read something I got from somewhere. Jesus took our sin and the guilt and the shame that goes with it and killed it on the cross. There is no need to beat yourself up for something that Jesus has bled and died for. When you feel you can't be forgiven and healed from shame, that's you talking. That's not our God. Jesus died not just for our sin, but to reverse all of its effects, including the shame it brings. Amen. Thank you, church. Um, we're going to sing a communion song now. It's called... We're going to sing In Christ Alone. And there's a, a line there, and I mean the words, this is an amazing hymn. Uh, but there's a, a line there I'd like you to take notice of. Um, it goes like this. And he stands in victory. Sin's curse has lost its grip on me. I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. As he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me.
When that line comes up, I'm going to sing. As he stands in victory, shame has lost its grip on me. Amen. Join me if you like. And after that, I'll come back and, and pray for the communion. Thank you, church. Thank you.